Welcome to the Informed Simplicity Project, a place for students searching for the informed simplicity on the far side of complexity. Today I have an incredible guest, Simon Goldberg, who I'm very excited about um, talking with, exploring his research. Um, and really what I want to do, Simon, is give you a chance to introduce yourself to, 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 to students and listeners, and then we can dive in. Yeah, that sounds good. Well, thank you, Jordan, for having me. It's really a pleasure. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Um, so I'm Simon Goldberg. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Counseling Psychology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And um, yeah, did my PhD here, trained out in Seattle at the VA for my um, psychology internship and postdoc. And no Jordan through some deliberate practice work that we've been yeah. collaborating on. So how did you get into the field, Simon? So it's a good question. Um, I was, and it's kind of a, a, it was a very strange journey. My bachelor's is in sociology. So I wasn't yeah. a psychology major undergrad. And I'd actually kind of gone off the deep end in a way into Buddhism and meditation in my personal life. And um, when I applied to graduate school, I was actually living at a, a Buddhist center in North Carolina wow. um, where I trained for two years and really wanted to go back to school um, because of my interest in meditation and um, as well as experiences I'd had as a client in psychotherapy that I'd found really helpful and transformative. So wanted to kind of marry those two and then um, put some research on top of it um, during graduate school. But before applying, um, I had applied in previous years for, uh, for environmental sociology and forestry. And I'd sort of been all over the place in terms of uh, life direction, but was feel really fortunate to have found psychology and counseling psychology and, and psychotherapy research. Yeah, uh, a lot of the greats have gone that same way, right? Like I think Richie Davidson, um, Daniel Goldman, there's someone else who, who I think a lot of, but they, yeah, they've kind of gone that way and, and then gone into psychology. Cool. Yeah, so are you true. practicing now or are you mostly doing research or what's your sort of? Yeah. So I mostly do research. I do a little bit of teaching, um, but yeah, my position's mostly research. Um, I'm working on a, a grant from NIH. That's a training grant. So I'm actually a student again, where this past fall, I, I was taking a class and doing homework and was reminded of how challenging graduate school <laughs> and learning over the internet can be. Oh, but, man. Um, yeah, so, but I will be, I'll be teaching again this spring um, and have, have been um, doing a fair bit of teaching the past couple of years, but no clinical work recently. And, and what, guess, are you, yeah. what are you doing training in? What are you getting trained in? So this was a clinical trials class. Um, the grant is focused on uh, technology and in the delivery of meditation through technology. Of, of meditation? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, so meditation, it's a meditation app that we're testing. And uh, yeah, so the, um, it's to help me become proficient in running clinical trials. Essentially. Wow. Yeah. That's really cool. And it is like a specialized training. I mean, there's so much that goes into that. And it was all this regulatory stuff that I'd never thought about because it wasn't just it wasn't just, you know, people doing mental health research. There were people in biomedicine. So we learned, for example, what do you do when your patient can't consent because they have dementia or because yeah. they um, have some other medical condition that makes them unable to consent? 
which I hope to never have be in that situation. But you never know. <laughs> but if you are, no, you never know. I'll look up my notes. Yeah. Now, have you done any reading or research on? Um, I know Richie Richie Davidson mostly through his research on like brain waves and meditation. Have you done any reading or research on? Yeah, that? so I don't have any neuroscience background. Okay. Um, I've collaborated on a, a few studies where we've included some biological measures and we have you know work where we've included behavioral tasks so some interest in non-self-report methods mm -hmm. but i don't ha i haven't done any brain imaging work okay. but you're right that is kind of his claim to fame was around yeah that and then also now a few people who like the neural feedback side of it looking at yeah. eegs and all that stuff yeah yeah which is interesting and i don't know you know, I'm so far removed from it. it. Sounds really interesting, but I can't evaluate any of that research because it's so nuanced or just outside yep. of my realm of competence. Right? Yep, the same for me. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so the thing that I'm most impressed with you about, and we can talk about anything because you have so many different interests, is your papers on like machine learning for coding therapy sessions. Yeah, so that's really... Um, so I, I, I like to think of myself as, uh, I think the word in ecology is detritivore, which are like, they're the, those are the animals that eat dead things. <laughs> but hear me out, wait for what? Because I, I feel like one of the things I, I got in the habit of in graduate school was kind of finding other things that people were doing where maybe there was like a little bit of leftover, you know, data or idea, and they just needed someone to like come and consume it and turn it into rich soil to grow things in. <laughs> Um, you mean a scavenger? You're just like, yes, yes, like exactly. <laughs> yes, a scavenger. <laughs> so that that's the machine learning stuff is really scavenging from from work that um, Dave Atkins at the University of Washington and Zach Immel at the University of Utah have been doing for a long time. Um, and I connected with Dave when I was a postdoc out there, and then um, Zach has is kind of an academic older brother um, who graduated from my program from the program here in Wisconsin. Uh, like a decade earlier and has always been kind of a hero for me. So that was really, but they've been doing a ton of work using machine learning to code motivational interviewing in particular, and more recently cognitive behavioral therapy too. Um, so they're, they, yeah, they are really, I have run with it, but, but we do have a couple papers where we've used some of those methods. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, I think most people don't even know what machine learning is. Yeah. So, um, uh that's a good question what's the short definition essentially it's a and and i'm a little bit out on a limb talking about this because yeah. it's really it's not um i don't have a background in computer science or or i mean i do plenty of statistics but there mike tanana is actually the collaborator who's been do, running all of the machine learning mm -hmm. models but um it's essentially a family of techniques that um that learns from data and in a way as far as i've read even a linear regression is a form of machine, machine learning, learning in a sense that it's learning from the data but the main thing that that kind of classic machine learning or artificial intelligence models are doing is they they split the data into parts so they use a portion of the data to develop an algorithm or in the regression example to kind of draw a regression line and then in a separate set of data, they, they look to see how well it performed. Mm. They have this kind of iterative process where you're training the data and then testing the data. And one of the hopes is that 
by doing that, by testing it on this kind of held out or external set of data, you're building models that are really good at predicting things. Yeah, because you have, you know, if you split your data, yep. you make a guess over here. Exactly. You can check your guess over here and exactly. know how close you got. Yep. Yep. And that's wow. really like, that's what they're testing against, which isn't, you know, usually when you run a regression, you use all your data. So that's not kind of how it's typically done, but that's, I mean, that's part of the magic. And then there's all sorts of other magic where they're able to run these incredibly complex sort of black box models where nobody really knows. It's not really interpretable what's happening inside the algorithm, but it's, it's able to predict things. Yeah, I've, I mean, that's all of like Siri and your phone and the, the recommendations on YouTube. It's all that technology. It's all that black box data type type stuff. Exactly. Yeah. That's insane that we don't know what's what's going on in there. Yeah, it's interesting. So we I don't, um, so in uh, so we published two papers using these methods and reviewers often want to know what's going on. In there. <laughs> so we try to. So in one of the papers, we try to answer that. So you, we say, OK, here are the 10 words that are most predictive, for example, of therapeutic alliance. But there's sort of nonsense like it's not clear. <laughs> it's not clear why that is. And part of that is because the algorithm is is you know, might have a million predictors in it. So picking out the top 10 doesn't necessarily tell you that much. Wow. It reminds me of a movie I watched uh, about a year and a half ago, maybe, probably before that, honestly, about AlphaGo, uh -huh. the, 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 yeah. the AI created by Google to like play itself in Go that now like is the world champion in Go. <laughs> like yeah. that right now. Yeah. Like, we don't know why it does these moves, but it beats world champion, you know, humans. Yep reliably and yeah yeah i mean there's this whole other side of this and i don't mean to drag us into this conversation and i don't have a lot of expertise to talk about it but um kind of the the uh <clears throat> unintended consequences of artificial intelligence and some of the things that um i mean there's a whole literature on biases that can be built into the models that can have you know um that can replicate inequalities that we see or biases that we see in, in people's ratings or perceptions. Yeah. And then this whole idea that, you know, we might build technologies that can be really dangerous. Yeah. Um, so I don't yeah. think, I mean, ours aren't working well enough to be a danger <laughs> to anybody. <but. laughs> I mean, I think that is one of the sort of in game um, questions of the technology. I, I remember reading, and this is a, a different field but like one of Gottman's original papers on um, how he uses, you know, nonlinear math, as far as I understand it, to like predict marital outcomes. Yeah. And he says in that paper, this is important, not because I can predict divorce. Yeah. Because this predicts the future. And I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> you know, and it's like, like these, the, like those are the end game questions we're having to yeah. ask now of like, like, where does this lead? Yeah. If I can predict marital divorce thing, can I predict an election? Right. You know, like, like, yeah. like where does this go? You know, I, I don't yeah. know. What is it? Minority report? <laughs> the the pre-crimes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But it, I mean, to you, like with the Gottman example, like imagine that on steroids where you're measuring, you know, physiology repeatedly from somebody's phone or um, through some sensor that people are are wearing and then using machine learning to predict marital outcomes. Like you could yeah. imagine like a really souped up version of that, that might be, I mean, that could be five or 10 years from now. I don't know. I mean, I don't know for you as a, as a 
marital family provider, like, is that, would that be useful to you or would that, would you want that in your treatment? So I've, I've, I've thought a lot about this and, um, I guess the, there's a short answer and a long answer. I think, I think what we need, so let's start with basic learning. Basic learning, in my opinion, I think Tony would agree with this, Tony Rubinier, who's a, a friend of both of ours, that the, the primary thing you need in any learning is feedback. Mm-hmm. And I think what Gottman shows us and other research is when you get really good feedback about things people don't typically get feedback about, your ability to learn can really grow, right? So if I'm going to play basketball and I'm going to work on my, you know, three-point shot, the feedback is very quick. I know very quick if I've made the shot or if I haven't. Yeah. What Gottman shows us is people who say they were marital experts really weren't, huh. right? They they were not as good as they thought that they were. Yeah. But once you have, you know, and Gottman almost boils it down to like five points, right? The four horsemen and the ability to repair once you have those those five points you can predict really well yeah. how people will be six years from now yeah so when you have that level of information you know i'm i am no longer sifting through all the noise i have the signal right. i think it's very helpful yeah i think it's very helpful and and i think what's scary to people is you know we like to think that humans are incredibly um that humans are fundamentally un predictable that we have uh-huh. free will yeah um but what i think the science is showing us is you know there are limits within limits we are actually very patterned beings yeah you know even across groups right i mean you know the five the four horsemen of the apocalypse that he, he talks about are for you know almost everybody in a choice where they get to 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 in Western society, right? Where you have yeah. things like, I can leave a marriage. I'm not, you know, bound by a certain economic stand, you know, things yeah. like these things are really predictive. And so yeah. I think it would be really helpful in us helping people. But I think the pushback people have is that's not relational. That's, that's not human. Mm. Yeah. So I would use it, but I don't know if my colleagues would. Yeah. And I think that's some of what Dave and Zach are coming across and they've done some qualitative work, like putting their tech, because they, they have a, a company, Listen, where they're, they're actually distributing this, these feedback systems and putting it in front of clinicians and actually getting the clinician's feedback on how yeah. they perceive that. Like, how does it feel to have an empathy score given to you by a computer? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you are not empathetic, Himan. Yeah. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly, yeah. You scored a five out of 10. We'll Especially you, when computer. it's, because it's not always great and it can't say, you know, try using we instead of you mm-hmm. necessarily. Because again, because the, the algorithms themselves can be quite complicated. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think, I think that to your, to your point though, and this is where it's like, we just don't know the future. Yeah. Yet, you know, maybe, maybe Gottman does, but he hasn't told us yet. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> but um, something in, in one of your papers that you said about was really, really important. Like once the machine learns it, it learns it for forever and it's infinitely scalable. Yeah, that's true. You know, so if it takes 20 years, okay. But once it learns how to, you know, do whatever we're trying to train it to do, it now knows it for forever. 
Um, at, at least for people who are similar to the data that you fed it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But it's true. I mean, it can learn. Yeah, it, re it remembers better. Computers remember way better than we do. <laughs> At least way better than I do. <laughs> yeah, they they re they remember, and you don't have to like, you know, like, you know, Gottman would have to train me in SPAF, which is his coding system, and then yeah. I have to like look at tapes, and then I'd have to. No, once you have a computer program, I can yeah. use it. You can use it. He can use it. Like yeah. your mom can use it. Like. Yep. Yep. So it's a, it's a fundamentally different, and the exponential factor, I think people don't understand of like, yeah, it's not one plus one, it's one times one times two times eight. And it just, yeah. just yeah. so fast. It just, yeah. Yeah. And maybe it's useful, Jordan. So like we we had two papers, one focused on the Alliance and one focused on interpersonal skills. Yeah. And the Alliance was using patient ratings and we were trying to predict that from the text and therapy right. and then the interpersonal skills was using uh responses to these video vignettes right and um alliance did kind of okay but totally not great um the text really wasn't that great at predicting alliance and it was much better but still not like human level at predicting the interpersonal skills mm -hmm. so to me and, and it's funny going through this like it makes sense looking back why that's so much it's so much harder to have a chunk of therapy and then predict something like someone's alliance rating because they have all these thoughts and feelings and idiosyncratic perceptions and that that's a really hard job for the computer to do as versus just having words from this one um response to this one video everyone sees the same video everybody responds in about the same amount of time that and then observers are able to code that reliably. And that's yeah. what you're predicting, that it's a, yeah. a job. <clears throat> I actually wanted to, to ask you about that. So you're using machine learning, which is a form of artificial intelligence, basically, right? Yeah. And you're specifically looking at uh, natural language processing, right? So you're using AI to look at language. Yeah. And there's a lot of research that says that the content of the words is not the most important thing. That it's more about you know prosody, the nonverbals, right. the paraverbals. Um, yeah. Is that just outside of your guys' interest right now? I mean, there, people need to study different things, yeah. obviously. But like, why did you choose the language over the? Yeah, it's a great question. So their group has done some work with frequency, um, and they've looked specifically, for example, at vocal synchrony, like the degree to which um, some of the prosody factors are matching, and um, it's just a lot simpler to start with text um, so I think that's part of why a lot of the work that they that listens doing and the work that we did in those papers it uses text as a starting point yeah um, but I have the same question and not to mention all of the you know non-linguistic like the non-verbal pieces um, but you can see I mean to your kind of exponential point that it just gets exponentially more complicated the more data streams that you're feeding yeah. it I have a friend right now. She was she was just on the podcast um, for the December episode, who was looking at. She's tracking physiology cool. between couples during session, nice. looking at skin conductance, heart rate, and uh, something else. And it seems to me like this would be you know this this your your approach. Part of the power of it would be to cut out all of her coding talk. She's going to be like the oh, next oh thing. My, you know yeah. what I mean? Like. That's the hope. I mean, that's not, it's funny. We have we're doing actually right after this call today. I have a coding meeting. Um, Jesse Owen is is yeah. training us in the 
in MCO coding, multicultural orientation coding, and it's a ton of time and it's really hard and it's really expensive. And I would love for this algorithm to be ready for prime time and it's not yet. But um, yeah, the hope is that we can, because then we could actually make this stuff usable and people yeah. out in the world could use it for research. You could use it in your practice. You could use it to, to deliberate practice your own skills. Yeah. And there's just all sorts of possibilities. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting. So. I mean, part of it, which I find really fascinating, is the way that all of these fields are working in parallel, really like intersecting. And there can be breakthroughs in natural language processing or breakthroughs in machine learning methods that can like totally revolutionize all of these, because all, all of these analyses are built on these other yeah. disciplines. So as they have innovations, and they, and they are, I mean, the machine learning world changes really really rapidly yeah um so it i mean it could be it really could just be a handful of years before these things are performing yeah. really well yeah i think that's something that's so like um in my opinion like one of the modern one of the weird things about modern times right like and i know this is a popular sort of metaphor but or this is i don't think people this is not popular as like people are thinking about this but this is a some this in the popular mindset, something like Neuralink, right? This uh -huh. brain interface being developed by Tesla yeah. could really change, you know, how we do therapy, how we do, how, how you guys do your work. Yeah. And it's something that's not in our field, but it's so easily connected. And once you have totally. the data, it's sort of there for forever and you can just, yep. like, it's, it's going to be a very bizarre next 10, 15 years, in yep. my opinion. Yep. Yep, yeah. I agree. Yeah, yeah and I, I mean, one of the questions, I don't know if you saw this, I think it was in the Atlantic <coughs> years ago, but the headline was something super provocative, like um, you know, uh, a robot will soon take your job or something like that. And then the, the subtitle was like, no matter what your job is. <laughs> and yeah, I was really, it was sort of like super spooky and also super compelling about all of these different tasks that these sorts of technologies can eventually replace. Yeah. And then it gets into this whole piece about, you know, well, what do people do with their time and yeah. how do people make money when we don't need humans? Yeah. yeah. So we have Bitcoin, right? <laughs> you can just... right. Yeah. <laughs> you got to talk to other people about that. <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah, Bitcoin is a whole other topic to avoid <laughs> for, for today. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's 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 a very interesting thing and it's weird how these things are all sort of dovetailing now yeah um, but they use i mean they use the examples they because i i would have thought well like they can't replace us we're therapists we're doing all of these complicated things and it's true it probably won't happen as soon as you know it'll replace the and it already does right you call your bank and you have to talk to a robot to get routed to the right person um but the theory is that eventually a lot of like even going and seeing a doctor and you, you mentioned these symptoms and there could be some, you know, you could program it to go through these different decision trees and actually it could have fewer errors than a human would because it yeah. has access to the universe of knowledge. Yeah, I think that you're right. You know, that's the like I've heard like pharmacists and accountants, you know, people who like we we typically think of um 
what other people might call like like low status jobs, right? Mm -hmm. Jobs that don't require a high skill set yeah. being replaced first. But there are jobs that are quote unquote higher status jobs, like accountants and pharmacists that are that are already sort of like shifting because of this thing. Yeah. Like it's a yeah. crazy yeah. new world that we're that we're moving into. Yeah. Um there's something else here. I'll have to come back to it. I forget what it is now. So what do you, if you were to sum up that whole sort of side of the research, where are we in machines and, you know, AI and being able to code sessions? Yeah, I think we're really just at the beginning, but the beginning's promising and it's, um, I think it's really promising. I think it's really just a matter of time between now and when these are, are truly ready for prime time and could be rolled out. And then there's no reason that people couldn't be using these clinically, using these different technologies clinically. For example, um, you know, if you wanted to look at adherence to a certain, um, uh, what is it? Um, I'm trying to remember. I did a little bit of couples therapy at the, the VA ICBT, IBCT. Okay. It's, it's one of the, um, anyways, I should have looked this up beforehand, but you have adherence to a certain like brand of therapy and you could actually be getting feedback on that and getting hopefully some kind of personalized recommendations about what would be most helpful for a given client or a given couple. Um, how, how far away do you think we are from developing models based off of this, right? Like in my mind, in the perfect world, I'd get you know, the top five therapists proven through outcomes. Yep. Watch what they do. Yeah. Have a machine sort of code code what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, do you feel like that's even on the is that even on the plate right now or are we just strictly in the coding of what we already know sort of phase? No, there's definitely exploratory work that's happening. Um there was recently a paper, I think it was in JAMA Psychiatry, where they used text. It was a text-based therapy, again, because text is way easier to work with than some of these more complicated data streams. And they were using the text, and I, I don't want to get this wrong, but my recollection is they were using the text to predict um, CBT adherence and outcomes, and were showing that um, that they could predict CBT adherence and the CBT adherence was predicting who was doing best in the wow. text-based therapy. Um, and that's the kind of thing, I mean, if you can imagine the sort of feedback loop, if you were automating the text-based therapy, which people are definitely, you know, trying to do, then you could, you could teach the text, you could, you could teach the technology how to most effectively respond. Mm. Right. So it could kind of feedback <laughs> on itself. <laughs> And this is, yeah. Wait, 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 wait. It sounded like what you just said was once you get a program that can really code a session, then the program can also basically give the session. Well, that's, I mean, there's a leap there. You're totally right. <laughs> and you could imagine like as these, as these algorithms get more powerful, 
I mean, there are definitely, there's definitely interest in kind of therapy bots and uh, Mike Tanana has done some of that work. Yeah. He's done it with a client bot where people can practice their MI skills, but there is, there's definitely interest in, and there has been for decades of creating a bot that you can say, you know, I'm feeling sad today. And the bot could say, tell me more about that. And then, oh, it's, you know, and that there could be this kind of dialogue that happens that actually could be therapeutic. I mean, that's the, that's the wow. therapist being replaced by the computer, right? <laughs> wow yeah no that's insane yeah and i think i mean i think it's scary from like a disciplinary turf standpoint and kind of from maybe a philosophical standpoint in the sense of like what does it mean to be a human yeah. and there's this other kind of health services part of my mind where it's like people people aren't getting therapy most people who need therapy aren't getting therapy for a huge variety of reasons and what if we had things that could be in people's pockets that could really make be a helpful. difference in their lives? Yeah. Mm. Wow. So there's going to be lots of people who say like, but there needs to be a human connection. Like it's not just what you say to people. Yeah. I think it, I think that's a, a really valid point and a totally empirical question. Mm. And, and the, so the, the other rabbit hole, the sort of mobile health technology rabbit hole um, I've been going down um, makes it feel to me that you you know there are certainly apps, for example, that don't have a human involved that can, that people can benefit from. So that's a really clear or websites, you yeah. know, a CBT-based website, for example. There, it's um, it feels very clear to me that people can benefit from non-human interventions, and even like you know from our generation, like we grew up reading books and there are yeah. like many books that I've read that really inspired me and made a difference in my life. And um, yeah, that's not new. You say that and I think about, uh, I think it's David Burns feeling good, you know, like one of the classic sort of self-help CBT texts that, yeah, yeah. and there's books on like smoking and there's some book like you will kid smoking by the end of the, there's something, there's a few books that have been out there. People, you know, yeah. have sort of these like, um, whole followings because they've totally they yeah. really have helped these certain people yep. in yep. their lives and stuff so totally. the whole self-help genre i mean that's yeah. what that's what it is and it wouldn't be around if people didn't get some benefit from it I yeah think. and the same with the apps i mean there's tens of thousands of mental health apps out there and they yeah. wouldn't all exist if there were if, if people weren't benefiting from it not to say that they're all empirically supported and that we should be recommending all of them but oh. um to me, that speaks to the fact that people can benefit. And I actually, I think, Jordan, that, that the same things that people feel with other humans, we can have some kind of flavor of that with these non-human technologies, too, where you trust it, you know, the kind of alliance construct, where you trust it, you agree that the way you're working on it is what's going to help, is going to help you, you agree on the goals, yeah. feel some kind of connection with it. Yeah, you say that, and it makes me think about, you know, I think the old Harlow studies, right, where yeah. in some ways he, he sort of showed us that, like, okay, these are the cues, right? A baby monkey, right. even without a, a mom, a, yeah. uh, a biological mom will go to a terry cloth mom, right? Like, yep. as long as it has these cues. Not a wire yeah. mom, but if he has these yep. cues and it forms the same sort of yeah relationship that's a great point yeah that's a really good point so we've already yeah. done this and so why can't we do it with you know yeah computers wow yeah 
And my hope, I mean, I think, I mean, I think technology is a total mixed bag, and it's really, it's also obvious. I mean, the events of this week, seeing the way that social media plays into polarization and plays into the incitement of violence. Yeah. Like these can be used lots of different ways. Yeah. Um, but my hope is that as we move forward and kind of get smarter about the stuff that we can sort of use our powers, AI powers and, and technology powers in general for human for good. Yeah, <laughs> for, for good. good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. there's money i mean you can make money from good too it doesn't if you don't need evil to make money yeah we can we can make you know these companies can make profits helping people yeah so. it's true it's true i think you see that you know with a lot of the companies now yeah Um, there was one other thing in, in your in your papers that you sent me that I wanted to ask you about. You you talked about ceiling effects. I don't know. Maybe that's a very specific thing, but I wasn't quite sure what you meant about. Yeah. So I think we probably talked about that in the Alliance paper. Uh -huh. Yeah. So um, basically, it means that everyone's using the top end of the scale, mm. um, which is a good news if you're a therapist and you want your client to like you. Most there most clients when we ask them how much they like us, they say they like us a lot, <laughs> which is good. Yeah. Um, but the problem is there's not a lot of variability. So when everybody's, you know, think of it as like grade inflation in college. If everyone's getting an A in the class, then you really don't have any way of differentiating between the highest and lowest performing students. So it, it makes it harder for the algorithms to work when there isn't variability. Wow. Okay. There you go. But it's an issue. I mean, that's an issue with an alliance. That's been an issue in alliance research for decades. Um, and it's still able to predict, you know, outcome, for example. So yeah. there, there's enough signal there, but you, you know, you don't, you don't have as much as you might if you didn't have the ceiling. Yeah. That, that brings me to another sort of question, which is related, not quite on the same topic. And then I want to get into some of your meditation stuff. Um, you know who Robin Dawes is? He's he's uh he's he's sort of like the Scott Miller before Scott Miller was Scott nice. Scott Miller. Yeah. Um really interesting guy wrote a book called House of Cards about yeah. how psychotherapy sort of builds on these sort of yeah. shaky foundations. Yeah. And, he's, and he's got a really great paper called like um I forget what it's called. But it's all about how we have these really fancy models. But if you actually make really simple models based off of off of a few key um, indicators, they're just as powerful as the fairly fancy yeah. models. So the example yeah. he gives is like marital satisfaction, right? It's like if you take, you know, the number of times you have sex per week minus the number of times you guys have a fight, as long as that number is above one, like you have a happy marriage, and like it's just as predictive as like you know what I mean, like these yeah. really complex models. And so the, the, the like question is like, do you feel, and maybe this is an unfair question, but do you feel like we need this really intense sort of scrutiny when we have some of these really simple predictors that, you know, if you put them in a really simple model, APGAR, you know, uh, scores for, for newborn babies being another right. example totally. are just as predictive. Yeah, it's a really good question. It's a really good question. Um, and that's part of the, the, 
issues that have come up publishing these papers where the reviewers ask, you know, why do you need this really complicated technology when what you're predicting is something that people can self-report in a minute? <laughs> why do you why do you need a machine to tell you when you could just get that information from your client? And a lot of and people are doing that. I mean, that's measurement-based care where people are getting these that information. So I think it's a fair point. I think with something like facilitative interpersonal skills, which like you were saying before, you have to train these teams of coders and it's just a whole huge effort to get people reliable and rating those sorts of things. That seems like a case where the technology can really make a difference. And in a way that's kind of more like Siri recognizing what you're saying, where it's doing a job that would otherwise, that a human would otherwise have to do that actually can be quite laborious. Um, but I think it's an open question. And I do think, you know, it's important to be aware of the um, seduction of complicated things when it's not always necessary and doesn't always help or make things clearer, you know, scientifically and certainly not the actual clinicians or patients or researchers. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So um, the other sort of really big area that you're sort of invested in is meditation. Is that is that correct? Yeah. 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 And so like, how does that play into your like research? You were talking about that early on. Yeah. I mean, so, well, there's the link with, with technology, as I mentioned that we were doing all this work focused on a, um, a particular app that's been developed. Um, and the hope is to um, increasingly integrate some of the, the artificial intelligence pieces into the app and actually be building responsive technology. So for example, um, this might sound a little bit creepy, but if your app notices that you're sad or that you're anxious or that you're lonely, could it provide an intervention that's been shown empirically to change those states? Or to a modify? cake. Yeah. Like, can it prompt you to eat some, eat some cake? <laughs> yes, eat some cake. That's what it does. It does that for everything, no matter how you're feeling. Eat some cake. Eat some cake. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but but that I mean that that feels to me like that's probably ten or ten years away at least. I mean that's a much more complicated, and and the designs for that are much more complicated. Like right now we're starting with these little itty bitty like, can you predict x from y, um, and then building technology that incorporates that information is a whole other much more complicated thing. But really for me, Jordan, I'm just. Uh, I feel I felt really inspired by the changes that I've seen people make in therapy. And I really want to figure out ways to get that out in the world. And I feel like um, I feel like technology can play a huge part in that. Yeah. So for me, I, I actually like at baseline tend to mistrust technology. I still have a dumb <laughs> phone. Like I'm very, I'm very, you know, skeptical about perceiving these things as necessarily good. I really have doubts about that. And it's like such a powerful tool and it's happening. The genie's not going back in the bottle. Yeah. Um, let's do something good with this. Yeah. So can you speak more to the research that, that you're doing now with the meditation? Are you, are you constructing the app or are you guys, like what are you guys doing with the Yeah, meditation? yeah, so the app, the app exists, a version of the app exists, it's called the Healthy Minds Program. It's um, one of the coolest things I think is that it's freely available. Mm -hmm. um, so there's no annual fee. It's really like, um, which, you know, there's a long tradition of that in the Buddhist tradition where you 
make things available. You don't charge people for the teachings. Um, and the app is, I mean, it's fairly rooted in Eastern contemplative practice, but has this whole layer of, um, of science essentially on top of it. So it has four main modules. Um, the first is focused on awareness or um, present, mo present moment attention. The second is focused on connection kind of interpersonal relationships and connection with oneself. The third is focused on insight, understanding our own mind and how it works. And then the last one is purpose or meaning in life. Um, and it has these different modules and different practices connected with each of them. And so we've been doing, we ran a trial uh, last year that was just published about a month ago, um, testing, it was the first randomized trial testing the app. And we have another study happening right now where we're testing the app in school district employees you know, during COVID and during this very stressful time for education. A thing looking to see what? Looking to see if the app um, has psychological benefits. Mm. So people are being randomly assigned to the app or a wait list control. Um, and the hope is to, you know, eventually be testing the app against other active interventions and really seeing maybe even who, who does the app work better for? Like who is the person that you should recommend a meditation app Who's the person that you should recommend cake for, or should recommend <laughs> a behavioral activation app, or should recommend a Netflix series or whatever? Um, so really being able to customize it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I'm really interested in the in questions about dosage. So if we think of meditation as a health behavior, maybe akin to exercise. How much do people need to be practicing? How rigorously do they need to practice? Are there certain practices that are most um, important or most important for certain yeah. things? And kind of all of those kind of dosing related factors. That's really interesting. Uh, a therapist I really respect, he says at the end of, at the end of therapy, he always has people build in, um, I forget what he calls it, but like rituals of restoration. You know, right. we're like, yeah. okay, now, 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 now that you've made this change and you've come this far, like, how are you going to continually take care of yourself Totally. so that you can maintain this? And it's like, yeah. without that, the idea that you're going to continue this is, you know, not realistic. Yep. And so it sounds like, you know, like, what's the dosage, right? After I get to this level one, I don't know, the PHQ-9, yep. um, then maybe I need to meditate for 20 minutes every day, just sort of moving forward, just to like keep myself yep. in a really good yep. spot and able yeah, to respond exactly. to stressors. Yep, yep, exactly. Yeah. And my guess is that there'll be a dosage question and then there'll be all of these kind of treatment matching questions. Like maybe for you, a loving kindness practice or a compassion practice really is connecting for you and maybe for me, I, I, in this moment, need to be thinking more about purpose and meaning and doing practices related to that. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. But it's true. I think, I mean, it's funny because in psychotherapy, I think sometimes we have the notion that people are kind of becoming their own therapist. Or I don't know if there's like a corollary in couples therapy. Do couples become their own therapist? Yeah and like develop some of the communication skills and other skills. Yeah, I think that's what that's like the, the hope, right? Is that I'm helping you to get to get in touch with your underlying longings. Yeah. And then hopefully you and your partner can do that. Nice. So that you won't need me in the future. Yep. Yeah. That's that's the ideal, at least. 
Yeah. And I could imagine, I mean, and I'm sure in some couples, couple therapy modalities that there's all sorts of techniques that are used to yeah. do that. But there, I mean, I could imagine there being all sorts of relational, um, what do you call it? Rituals of, of uh, uh, restoration, restoration. Yeah. Um, that there could be things that couples could do together, practices mm -hmm. that they could do together that would help restore. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. I mean, I think even like, um, <laughs> in some ways, I feel like with some couples just doing anything, you know, sometimes people right. get so busy, yeah. you know, and they don't have time to spend with each other, which is just right. not really helpful if you want the relationship to improve, you know, yeah. <laughs> so like you have to yeah. be doing certain things. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Totally. Yeah. Um, and so this is what you're doing full time. Um, how come you're not doing the psychotherapy practice? Is that just because you're so busy with the with the work or is that, yeah. you know, you? Well, the short answer, Jordan, is that uh, if I don't do research, I lose my job. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm not tenured yet. I'm, I'm in the pre-tenure years. So. Yeah. Um, I, as you know, you know, I think in year five or six, you go up and then they decide whether you get to stay. Yeah. That's predominantly based on how much research you did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, but I do miss it. I love, I love psychotherapy. I think it's amazing and um, so much fun. And yeah, I actually really loved couples therapy. That was some of the, my favorite clinical work. It really felt like there was an opportunity to change systems and to really yeah. bring make some healing happen. Yeah. So I super admire the work that y'all do. And are you thinking that, that 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 you'll go back into it? Some some people they get into the research side of it and love it so much they're like, this is where I am now. Yeah. Do you want to go back to doing counseling? Or are you? I mean, if I I'm so I'm licensed. Ironically, I stopped practicing as soon as I got licensed. <laughs> like I finished all my postdoc hours. Um, That's how it usually goes. <laughs> But I, uh, if, I mean, in a world of infinite time, there would be no question I would love to spend a day a week um, doing, some, doing some clinical work. And um, we do have a, we have a training clinic in my department and I got to do a little bit of work there when I first, my first year in this job. And it was fun in, in seeing students, you know, working and um, doing a little bit of supervision and just kind of stewing in the mystery of, of change. And it was, yeah, I missed that a lot. Yeah. I get to do a little bit of teaching of meditation, which doesn't feel exactly like clinical work, certainly, but the class I'm teaching this spring is a, a psychology of mindfulness. So we do mm. a lot of practices together and um, people certainly have kind of thera therapeutic or therapy adjacent content. Oh yeah. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so what, do you feel like is on the forefront of the field is on the the leading edge obviously you're on the, the edge well, but I if we were to go that. to the to the tip <laughs> of the spear like what do you feel like people should be paying yeah. attention to this for the next five to five to yeah to ten years um it's a really good question um so an answer that i heard bruce wampold give that's really stuck with me that he probably he said this at um i think it was at his retirement party Wow. Um, and he said the issue is access. And that's really stuck with me. And that's part, honestly, part of the motivation for the whole mobile technology thing is that 
I'm, I feel less inspired to write another paper or do another research study looking at some therapy process and showing how it predicts outcome, which is important. And we've needed those studies and, you know, we've needed them for decades and we have a lot of them now. Um, but the bottom line is that we know that therapy tends to work when people can get it. And so I'm really interested. And I think, I think the tip of the spear is how can we get people access to interventions that can help them? And that's kind of the broad question. I think there's a lot of different innovative ways that people are doing that. I mean, one that we haven't talked about at all is the whole um, peer support world. Mm. And they've, that's something that they're doing a lot of in the VA. I know they're doing a lot of in other countries too, where there just aren't enough mental health providers. So they train trusted, beloved community members who go, I read a study that was done in Africa, published in JAMA, um, where they trained it and they were grandmothers and they would sit on a bench with you and talk to you. And they, there was this whole protocol where they were trained to um, respond empathically, like trained in basic counseling skills. And it was really helpful for people's depression, right? And that's something like you can, tr you can train 100 grandmothers much quicker than you can get people licensed as mental health providers, <laughs> right? Yeah, no, you can definitely. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the onboarding for mental health is just... Yeah. You know, I tweeted yesterday and, you know, if you want to, if you want to be, you know, uh, a pianist, you started four. If you want to be a therapist, you started 40, right? right. Like, it's yeah. like, yeah. you know, like you have to go through so much learning and training and then education before you yeah. can, yeah. And I don't mean to say that's not important and that that's not, you know, really like, I think especially when patient safety is concerned, you know, you need people who have the kind of training that you have to really work with, with. A lot of situations and there's a whole subset of people maybe you know more doing more prevention where having these interventions at scale can really make a difference i mean i think you know um what you're saying is something that we need to really take very seriously as a field you know there's my wife was uh involved with multi-systemic therapy yeah and um you know they use people from the community who are not necessarily counselors they train them for a week, they give them supervision, yep. and their outcomes, you know, are at par with people who've been through two years of a master's program plus two years of, you know, licensure or whatever, yep. you know what I mean? Yep. And so, yep. um, yeah, and like, you know, the original sort of studies on lay counselors, I think was university professors with students, yep. and they were just as effective as, yeah. and so, I mean, I do feel a little bit of turf guarding, but I think totally. the research is clear of that. Lay counselors can easily be effective, yep. um, especially in certain communities, you know? Yep. And so yep. Yep. you're right, right? If, if, if our job, if, if our goal, if our heart is to alleviate human suffering, yeah. we have to explore this. Yep, yep. Yeah. And not to mention all of like, there's lay counselors and then there's all of these other healing systems that people have in their life. Like how do you get people connected with their partners or their communities or their sense of spirituality or their church or um, their sports team? Or I mean, there's so many, and that's part of what's I think really disturbing about evidence that people are lonelier than ever yeah. and that the social fabric is being disrupted. Cause a lot of that, I mean, that's what keeps us healthy is having these connected relationships. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, you're talking about that. It sounds like the the, the like social the social capital sort of yeah. stuff. Yep. You know, 
and the crazy thing about social social capital is like back to Gottman, you know, he says interventions don't work in places of low social capital, right? Yeah. When we don't have these strong communities, yeah, these interventions don't yep. work. Yeah. Which is a crazy thing to even be like. <laughs> you know, like right. this right. these these communities where people can talk to, you know, their spouse or their uh, partner or the family member like those are the sort of bedrock that allow therapy yep. to really do good work yeah yep. totally and i do that i mean uh not get, to get a little bit dark but the pandemic has really like it's clearly having an effect on people's relationships and people's communities and i just hope it doesn't go on that much longer because i know a lot of people are suffering yeah there's a lot of psychological fallout from all this yeah yeah i think i think you're right you know, Stephen yeah. Porter's just just released a paper about how COVID uniquely challenges us because he says we have a biological need for connection. Yep. But this is keeping us disconnected. Yep. And so it just is like a double stress of yep. the pandemic plus the lack of connection. Yeah. Lack of support. Exactly. So Jordan, it's thanks to people like you who are doing podcasts and <laughs> I mean, because there is connection that I feel it right now talking to you. Like over the computer, we can still the same parts of our brain, I have no doubt, are lighting, are lighting up, up when we're talking. Maybe not exactly in the same way, but we certainly can connect with others meaningfully through through technology. Thank you. You know, that that is a part of my like that's that's a part of the positive feedback I've received on the podcast. You know, students and an online program to say this is really helpful because like, I get to sort of know you. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. it's just through emails and, you know, maybe a quick video chat. And then, right. but, you know, the same goes for you, right? Like, we need people who are really taking serious this question of scale. How do we help people at scale? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think it, you know, takes, takes all of us working together to get this thing figured out. Yeah. And I just feel lucky that we get to do this work. Like, it is. Yeah. It's definitely <laughs> a blessing. Yeah. Well, look, do you have any closing words, any closing thoughts for us? No, thank you. This was really fun. Thanks for, and anyone who made it to the end, I didn't know how long this conversation was going to be, but <laughs> if you made it this far, go have some cake. Go have some cake. <laughs> the computer <laughs> prescribes it. <laughs> well, okay. Um, is there anything you want us to like link to, people, places you want people to, to visit, websites or yeah, I mean, if people are interested in the um, the Healthy Minds app, like I said, it's available for free. The website is tryhealthyminds.org, or you can find it on the, the Center for Healthy Minds website. Um, yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, keep up the good work. <laughs>